This is a crowd podcast. I had to... I had to really take a leap of faith talking to you. Do you know that? Well, I don't know it, but I was pretty sure. I meet this man, this shadow, on an audio-only call via my computer. I don't know your name. I don't know where you are. I hear what you're telling me about things you've done. And I'm like, hmm, do I let this person into my life? You know, it's a risk. Ah, it's not a risk, Sam. It'd be a risk if I was over at your house having cheeseburgers and hanging out with your family. You know, then there might be some people that really wanted to uh, track me down or locate me and do me harm. Yeah, then it'd be a risk. I know that you want the bad guys to be afraid of you. But how do you feel about the fact that a lot of the good guys will also be afraid of you and what you do? Well, if they're true good guys, they know they've got nothing to be afraid of. And that's the God's truth. This time on American Vigilante, Vengeance. He said, I wish I was the man that you are. He said, and I wish I was good enough to go and do this myself, but I am not. It's a graphic story, let me tell you. You have been warned. I said, what is it you want? And he screamed it with tears running down his face. I want his fucking head on a pike. More of that later. And more darkness, too. And an insight into what movie night at Casey's house is really like. So why are you talking to me? You know... There's no feeling in the world like putting a child that's been kidnapped and taken away from its mother and father back in the arms of those people, I'm telling you. No matter how many times I've made that happen, uh, the emotions that I feel, it's like the first time. So, why am I here? I'm here because if it stops one or ten or a hundred and makes them think, maybe I shouldn't do this because those son of a bitches will come for me. Well, then that's better than what I've been doing for more than two decades. I'm Sam Walker, and this is American Vigilante, Episode 8, Vengeance for Amanda. Do you have a routine? Do you have, I mean, I'm not talking about when you're off on your job, but when you are in your home, do you have a daily routine? I try. (laughs) I really do. I really and I, I'm a person that doesn't believe in using the word try, but I have to at this thing. I do try. It just depends on how tired I am and whatnot if I can get back into that rhythm. Right now I'm playing catch up on a lot of stuff, so my routine's been kind of scattered. What did you do when you sort of had some downtime? I watched a, I watched a movie, a whole movie, uninterrupted, and I ate food that was really bad for me. <laughs> That sounds like a pretty regular way that any any regular person would chill out, actually. What film did you watch? I watched uh, Big Jake, John Wayne, Big Jake. Oh, nice and modern then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yep, and then I also watched uh, Suicide Squad, which, you know, I thought was hilarious. Oh, that's a bit more current. There's a lot of shooting, screaming and yelling and stuff, but it's, it's there's a lot of comedy type stuff to it too, so it's pretty funny. That just sounds like a day at work for you, Casey. That doesn't sound like any sort of escapism. (laughs) when i've talked to you before about what you do to kind of chill out and have downtime you've told me about going out in nature and just sort of sitting in nature but i was going to talk to you about what you like to watch so big jake you know what i can see that suicide squad i can see that what other are your sort of favorite movies my absolute favorite movie in the whole world is where the red fern grows you mean you should read the book and watch the movie It's old, but it's an incredible movie. A poor boy that works his ass off to buy these dogs and take care of them, feed them, you know. He he travels miles against his father's wishes to go get them, yeah. But the dogs in themselves are pretty incredible. It's a story about tenacity. It's a story about love and honor and respect. 
you know, I got to see it two or three times as I was growing up. And then when I went in the military, I ended up buying a copy. And, yeah, I've just I've always, always liked the movie. So it's a film that's always stayed with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really has. It's something that's relaxing and that I can relate to, you know. I remember my first dog, and I remember having to shoot my first dog, and I remember all that. It's, it's, it takes you back to, to where you're at. You shot your first dog? Yeah. Hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. I, uh, I had just got him. He was a collie. I named him Lad. Had him for about four months. And my dad was coming home from work, and we had a really long gravel driveway. We lived way out in the mountains. And uh, dad was coming up the driveway, and Lad was running next to him, and he was just a puppy. And uh, he got underneath the back tires, and dad ran him over. Well, he didn't kill him. <laughs> and Lad was sitting there squalling and screaming, and my dad got out, and I came running. And my dad looked at me, and he goes, son, he goes, I'm going to have to put him down. He says, I'm sorry. He goes, go get me the gun. And I just looked at him, and I was like, Dad, I said, can't we fix him? <laughs> and he goes, no. He goes, son, we can't. He goes, he's in pain. I went and got the gun. I came back, and my dad reached out for it, and I said, no. I said, I'll do it, Dad. I said, he's my dog. It was a rough thing, but I, I still remember petting him and putting the gun to his head and pulling the trigger, put him out of his misery because he was... He was squalling, and there was blood everywhere, and his intestines were hanging out. And it was it was pretty ugly. Then I picked him up and buried him. How old are you? Seven. No, I was six. I was six. That's a really traumatic experience for a six-year-old to go through. Well, death is part of life. It, it sucks. And, and death is never easy. It's not. But having a family pet that lives a happy life and a long life, you know, I remember my cat. I had my cat from the age of about eight till, gosh, I was about 20. And having to take her to the vet to get her put down devastated me. That is learning about life in the circle of life and that death is a part of life. Seeing your dog horribly injured and then shooting a dog in the head that you have loved, that's not a regular file under death is a part of life experience. That is a lot for a kid to deal with. Well, hell, the nearest vet was probably more than an hour away. You know, he wouldn't have lived that long. He was squalling, his guts were hanging out. So I either sat there and, and let him be in pain or I put him down. So it was the most humane thing to do. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I should apologize in advance for this one, Sam. Now, there is an Amanda in this story, but to be clear, this is not the same person who's in a previous episode. I also want to say that I found part of this story particularly difficult to listen to. Some of the horrific detail has been taken out, but it is still upsetting. Anyway... Here we go. So today is a, a story about a, a young couple. I think they were like eight or nine years old when they first met. Amanda had moved over to another state where Jesse was, and they met in school, and they grew up being friends and neighbors, ended up falling in love and all that all through high school. Then uh, Amanda went off to college. Jesse's just a working boy. He, he worked hard, blue collar. And him and Amanda, of course, stayed in touch. They didn't separate, they still dated. They still, you know, saw each other when they could. And she came home from college and uh, they got married. She's 23, he's 23. And he had saved his money so he could do two things. One, he wanted to give her a good honeymoon and the other, he wanted to buy her a house. They got married and they flew to Mexico for their honeymoon. On the second day, they were out, um, and they, they, they weren't, like, 
drinking, being wild, partying. They were spending their honeymoon. They were just hanging out together, having a couple drinks, having nice dinners, holding hands, walking on the beach. I mean, this is what they did for the first two days they were there. They were out that night, and uh, Amanda's a really beautiful woman. She she is incredible. Um, she got blonde hair and bright blue eyes and one of those all-American girl looking that everybody likes. And uh, she was shown a lot of interest by a lot of a lot of men down there. So they went back to their, their little bungalow that night, and uh, three men showed up. And they knocked on the door first, and Jesse asked who it was, and they said it was uh, security. <laughs> Jesse said, well, we don't need anything. Everything's fine. And they ended up forcing their way into the room. Well, Jesse's not a small guy. He's strong. He worked construction. He's a hard worker, and he grew up on a, on a ranch. And he fought him. He fought all three of them. Um, he ended up getting a, a fractured skull, a broken jaw. They broke his arm, and they beat the hell out of him. And uh, they ended up taking Amanda with them. Had they been, Casey, had they been in a resort? Had they been in a, in a hotel complex? From what I understand, it was, a, it was like a little bungalow-type thing. There was you know, several of them along the beach, farther, farther down. Like, I, I don't know, they are probably... 50, 60 feet apart. Right. So they were like an exclusive resort that was serviced apartments on the beach type thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, Jesse came to in a hospital in Mexico. Um, Amanda was still missing. Uh, he came to, I think it was two, three days later. And first call went out was to her father. Uh, Amanda comes from a, a very wealthy family, um, East Coast old money and Jesse told me he's in the hospital and, and he needed help so father flew down there and he ended up getting Jesse and getting him back to the US and uh, he started making calls a lot of calls and he was looking specifically for somebody that could find his daughter and he ended up coming across me through some referrals some people that he knew so he contacted me, and I found out that she'd already been missing for, well, it was three days at that time, and he explained the situation. Did he explain to you why he didn't want to go to the police and the authorities and the FBI and the like? Well, they can't do shit down in Mexico. I mean, it, they can, but it, it takes time, and he knows that. He's not a fool. He's a wealthy man. He, he, he wants revenge. He, he was furious. He was angry. He was horrified, and he was scared. And he actually flew to a destination close to me, and I drove, I, me driving and him flying, we arrived at a destination that was shorter for both of us. And I met with him, and uh, we agreed to a price. And I, I told him, I said, look, I says, uh, I, I really don't need any money up front except travel expenses. And he goes, I will get you anything you need. How do you begin to work out a price for something like that? I flat rate at 250 bucks an hour, portal to portal. That's what I'm charging somebody. But in a situation like this, even though the man's wealthy, this is kind of a, a heartstring thing. Of course, I've got a job to do, and of course, I've got to make money. But my God, <laughs> for me to tell him I need a, you know, a $20,000 retainer up front on top of expenses, that, that might put him in a position that he can't do. I'd rather have $20,000 extra dollars for expenses to bribe some scumbag to get information, right? But like you said, you've still got your bills to pay, right? You've still got to live. Well, I tell them they cover my expenses and, and pay me what they feel is right when the job's done. And some people that contract my services can't afford it. Mm. You know, people do what they can. And I, I do what I can to the best of my ability for those people. But the big thing is getting the expenses covered and getting me there as soon as possible. That's the big thing. So anyway, he flew me down there. I made him a laundry list of stuff that I was going to need. And I told him normally I'd just drive down, but I, I needed this stuff as soon as possible. I had to get down there and see the area and, and start checking things out. What sort of things are on that list? I needed clothing. I needed an apartment down there, a place to work out of. There was weapons that I needed, and I told him they needed to be acquired in Mexico. There was night vision, um, flashlights, flares, um, edged weapons, uh, 
I'm pretty good with edged weapons, and I, I like them. Edged weapons? What's that? Knives. Right. You know, you should always have a way to start fire. Uh, if no other reason, it's a great distraction. And, uh, I mean, you're going to laugh, but I almost always carry a pantyhose and crazy glue. Okay. <laughs> yep. I'm not even going to go into why. What? No, no, come on. You nope. can't. You can't leave that hanging. Well, you can fix just about anything with those two things. So, he uh, flew me down there. Um, I was solo on this one. I get down there and uh, went to the hospital, and I I got a copy of the report, the accident report. And I asked the police department for a a report of the incident that happened, but they had nothing. And believe me, money does strange things, and a lot of them get paid off to not see things and turn the other way. And, you know, to them, she's just another American that was down there partying, and something happened to her. So that's what I had to go on. That was it. There was nothing else. There's no vehicles. There was no nothing. You speak Spanish, though, right, which is important because this obviously helps you. Yeah, yeah, it does help. Um, Jesse remembered one of the guys had a really big scar. It went from, like, behind his ear down his neck and into his chest. And that's that's pretty much all I had. You know, it had been a long few days. I'd, I'd been getting up early, staying up late. And it's hard when you're concentrating that much for that long. And even during the days, I mean, I was combing the streets, going to other little restaurants, just going around the whole area trying to look and find somebody. And I couldn't. There was times I'd position myself and and look through binoculars for hours at people going down the street looking for a guy with a scar down the side of his face and his neck. But humans are creatures of habit, and they tend to frequent the same places. I started poking around. Uh, I went to the the restaurants that they went to and discotecas, you know. And the nights that Jesse and Amanda had been out were on a Friday and Saturday night. So that's, that's when I went to these the dance club and the restaurants uh, at the times that they went. It was on the late on Saturday night. Um, I was at the, the dance club. Big volumes of people. Everybody there's dancing, having a good time. A lot of lights, flashing lights. They got the big, you know, disco balls, things like that. It was dark. So, you know, I'm, I'm watching everybody that's coming in. And I'm, I'm trying to stay as close to the door as I can so I can see people coming in because it's too hard to try to monitor everybody. And I got there early way early and I'd been asked to dance by a couple women a couple times and I just kind of told them no and you know they they kind of got their feathers ruffled but uh in walked five guys and one of the guys he kind of when when he came in the the strobe light was flashing and his his face kind of looked strange on one side and I I started trying to follow these guys around and I couldn't get close enough to him to verify whether or not there was a scar in any of these guys and they started dancing and drinking and finally two of the guys came over by me and they sat down at a table that was right next to me and they brought a couple girls with them and pretty soon the other three guys come over I mean they're sitting now five feet from me and the middle guy who was about five foot five he's got a scar down his neck and onto his chest I tell you the beast in me started to rise I wanted to go grab that little son of a bitch by his throat and make him talk. But you can't do that. First of all, I don't know nothing about his friends. Uh, Second of all, you know, I don't live there. And third of all, if I screw up the, uh, the only opportunity I have to find her. So the two girls that were already at the table were both Americans. One of them blonde hair and green eyes and the other one dark hair and blue eyes. I'm just sitting there drinking, watching the dancing, watching them. And I see one of the guys slip something in one of their drinks. The, the girl with the green eyes and the blonde hair. She went out dancing with one of the guys and came back. And after about 40 minutes, you know, she started kind of getting glassy-eyed and sloughing off to the side. And uh, they end up telling her, her friend, hey, we'll help her. You know, we'll, we'll take her back to the hotel and all this. And the guy with the scar and the other two guys were the ones that helped her out of there. So I followed him. And uh, she, the, the girl with the dark hair and the blue eyes was still with the other two guys at the discotheque. So I followed the other ones, and uh, they ended up going about, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 blocks, a little like apartment building. And uh, I watched them take her in. She was stumbling, and it obviously wasn't her hotel. They went up some stairs, 
and uh, I seen him disappear through this doorway. Uh, it was like the second floor, and there's a you know a perimeter fence around the place, but it was an open gate, nice nice little apartment complex. So I I decided I should follow him up in and and kind of try to see if I could see anything. So I get up there and I'm peeping through the windows and stuff, and they they got curtains like not curtains but you know I call it they're like bamboo kind of blinds. And I can kind of see through them. They're just kind of angled. Uh, windows are open. It's hot, you know, it's hot night. And uh, I'm watching, and she's kind of sprawled across the couch. She's still talking, but she's really incoherent. And uh, I hear one of the guys go, I'm going to check on her. And I thought, check on her. And so he's gone for about 20 minutes. He comes back out, and he goes, yeah, she's good. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of weird. So I just sat there and I waited. One of the guys finally comes and goes out the door, goes and gets in a car, and he leaves. I decided I, I was going to go ahead and enter. It's about to get rather hairy. Trust me. We'll enter that apartment shortly. Also, KC reveals that he's lied to me about something. All that after the break. Hello there, I am Tom Fordyce and I'm one of the producers on American Vigilante. I do hope you're enjoying the series. Now, if you need a break from KC and you're feeling peckish, why not try Factors No Prep No Mess Meals? They're a great way to meet your wellness goals in time for the summer, if it ever arrives, with chef-crafted meals like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Factor always makes fresh meals, never frozen. They're dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. And they taste really good. They've got loads of options from breakfast to dessert. There are 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality dishes with premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and blackened salmon, but all without prep and the cleaning up. Head to factormeals.com slash American50 and use code American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code American50 at factormeals.com slash American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface, to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Okay, we're again in Mexico, looking for Amanda. And our hunt has led us to this apartment. I entered through the the side doorway. The first main door you went in was right there in the front of the apartment. The side door was over, you you walked around, and it was like a side door that went in. It was a smaller door, almost like a service door. So I entered inside, and the, the one guy is sitting on the couch with the girl that they brought back, her head in his lap. The other guy... He was in the kitchen cooking some heroin. He was heating it up in a spoon and sucking it into a syringe. And I just sat there and I watched him. I was kind of over off the side. I just kind of watched him. 
and he got it ready and he took it out. Now the other guy's sitting there with the girl's head on his lap. This guy walks over and they grab this girl's arm and they stuck her with it. I came out and I smacked the guy that was sitting down on the back of the head as hard as I could. I hit him with a closed fist as hard as I've ever hit anybody. And his head snapped forward and he was out. The other guy jumped up and he's pulling a gun out. I just jumped over the couch and I pretty much tackled him. We went down on the coffee table. I was a lot bigger than he was. I grabbed the gun out of his hand and I stroked it across his face. Grabbed him by his throat and this is the guy with the scar. And I drug him back down the hallway. When I had smoked him with that gun barrel, the front sight on it, when I grabbed it out of his hand, it cut him. And the gash that I put on him went from his cheekbone almost to his mouth. And it was, it was open bad. You could see meat, it was bleeding really bad. So I'm dragging him and he's choking. And I get back to this bedroom. And uh, there's Amanda laying on the bed. I almost puked when I walked in that room, Sam. And I had my shit together and I still almost puked. I can't even tell you what it smelled like in there. That's something I can't talk about on on here and make anybody understand. You know, flies. I mean, it was disgusting. I mean, she was treated like a fucking animal. Um, She'd been shot up with heroin a lot. She was not coherent. She was, I would say, awake, but not, not coherent at all. Her clothes had been torn. I mean, she she was in really bad shape. Well, right about that time, I heard the front door opening. So I still had those little pricks throat in my hand, and I smashed his head as hard as I could against the door frame. I hit that door frame so hard with his head, it, it split like a fucking pumpkin. And I dropped him, and I turned around, and I went toward the front of the house. Well, the guy that came in, he'd already seen the other guy on the couch slump forward, you know, and uh, he called out right whenever I came out of the hallway, and I, I just shot him. So I went over to the door, and I grabbed him, and I drug his ass into the room, and I threw him over on top of the couch on the other guy. I went back into the, the bedroom, and I, I picked the man up in my arms, and uh, I was real careful. I... Uh, Wrapped a blanket around her, and uh, her pulse was good. It was it was strong, but she was obviously out of it. There was so many track marks on her arms. She had blood and scabs on them already. So I carried her outside. I carried her down to the car that the guy had had, and, and I put her inside. And then I went back up, and I got the other girl. I, I didn't know her, but I wasn't going to leave her there. And I picked her up, and I carried her downstairs, too. Now, this is the time of night when the city's alive. So there's people all over the sidewalks. There's people all over the street. There's people hanging out. There's people coming in and out of little cantinas and, and side carts on the street. And here I'm carrying this girl down the stairs wrapped in a sheet. And uh, I raised quite a little crowd around the car. And I asked them where the hospital was. And they all pointed. So I picked up my phone and... Uh, called her dad, a satellite phone that I had in the pack that was with me. And I told her that I'd found her. And I told him that she was in horrific condition. Um, He came down the next day. I stayed with Amanda that whole night. Her father told me he wanted her to have the best care possible. So he ended up getting a private surgeon and all private medical. It was a long recovery. She had hemorrhaging in her abdomen and her liver and you know there's bite marks all over her stomach and oh my god she was also very much addicted to heroin by that time after about a week um had her stabilized good enough he flew her back to the u.s jesse wanted to see her and by then he could walk and and move around better without falling down um so he stayed by her side through the whole thing and uh They've got five kids now, and they live a, they live a good life. 
She doesn't work. She's a stay-at-home mom. She has no desire to travel out of the country anymore. And uh, Jesse still works as a hard-working blue-collar dad. It was about two days after she came back to the U.S., her father called me again. And he told me that, uh, that he wasn't finished. He said those three guys, there was somebody that was supporting their endeavor and he wanted, he wanted them found. And I said, okay. I said, how do you know this? And he goes, well, he goes, uh, I've had some people down there looking around. He goes, and they, uh, they have uh, somebody they answer to. He said, and obviously they're picking these women up and renting them out. He said, and I can quote this, I wish I was the man that you are, but I don't believe in violence. He goes, the feelings I have right now, he goes, I've never experienced in my life. He said, and I wish I was good enough to go and do this myself. He goes, I really do. He goes, but I am not. I said, what is it you want? And he screamed it, screamed it with tears running down his face. I want his fucking head on a pike. So back down I went. It took me three and a half weeks to locate the person that was behind it all. It took me another week and a half to be able to get close enough to him. I went to him in his room when he was sleeping and I provided Amanda's father with a photograph, a Polaroid photograph of his request, which was destroyed immediately after. He had peace and he let Amanda know and Jesse that that wouldn't be happening by those people to any women again. So when you were able to carry out his request, what did that feel like for you? I enjoyed it. How does it feel telling me that now? Doesn't bother me a bit. We're talking about that turd going down the toilet again right now. We're kind of dancing around the elephant in the room here. But you enjoyed taking a life because you felt it was morally the right thing to do. I enjoyed exterminating an insect that was poisoning the planet. There's a big difference between taking a life and getting rid of sewage. Huge difference. So if Amanda's dad had said she's home with me, I'm good with that, that for you would have been the perfect ending for that case, as equally to what he then asked you to do. I didn't say that. I'm interested to know. That's what I'm asking you then. After what I saw, I probably would have went down there by myself. In fact, I can tell you I would have went down there by myself and took a vacation for about a month. And, and, you know, for her father to want that, no, to me that wasn't unreasonable at all. That wasn't even revenge. That was just ensuring the fact that somebody else's daughters didn't suffer the same fate. That guy was a piece of shit. That guy controlled hundreds of people, and he prostituted God knows how many women. I mean, he was in his 60s. How long do you think he'd been doing that to people and collecting all that money and living in that big fancy fucking house with all those guards? That sick fuck. What happened to the other woman in this story? The woman you first saw taken from the club? She went to the same hotel room as Amanda and uh, Amanda's father located her parents and then flew her back to the U.S. with Amanda, but she stayed in the same room getting the same care as Amanda the entire time she was there. And uh, her friend ended up coming and staying there in the room with her until she went back to the U.S. Do you know what really struck me when you were telling me that story? Is you talked about the fact that the first thing you did pretty much when you got there was go and see Jesse. And Jesse tells you that one of these guys has got a scar from pretty much the side of his eye all the way down his face, across his mouth and down his chest. Now to me, number one, how lucky is that? Because as you said, if, if there'd been no distinguishing marks on any of these guys, it would have been virtually impossible to find them. 
But, and don't take this the wrong way, is that you found those guys pretty damn quickly. It took you a few days and you're in a club and there was clearly some luck going on there that they walked into the place you were in and you could identify him. Well, it's probably a club they frequent. Yeah. Why couldn't the, I mean, it, I'm presuming Jesse told the police in Mexico who then came and put the crime scene around, hey, there's a guy with a scar from the side of his eye all the way down his face, all the way down his chest. I'm kind of imagining there aren't that many people hanging around that city with distinguishing marks like that. It's extraordinary the police didn't have them on file, couldn't find them like you did in a couple of days. I can't answer for the police, and I can't especially answer for the police in Mexico. I just know that I had a thread, and I had to find the end of that thread so I could pull on it to unravel the sweater. And all I had to go on was, you know, people are creatures of habit. They stay in a certain area. And I, I staked out the, the three things that I could stake out, two restaurants that they'd ate at and one dance club. And that's what I did. When you walked into that room and saw Amanda in that state, what is an earth going through your mind because telling me you are shaken up but when you are walking in can you remove yourself emotionally from that situation oh yeah when when i'm working i i function fine it's all about completing my objective when i'm at that situation right there i have no emotion other than pretty much anger and i keep that reined really tightly because if you get angry you make mistakes and if you make mistakes you can't do your job and if you can't do your job either you're going to get killed or somebody else is going to get killed you know um if i took a minute to show compassion that's when people get weak they, they need strength but where does that come from is this something you were taught in the military it's something you've taught yourself how do you learn that you know i don't know sam i don't even know how to answer that but i can tell you this you know i, I was married a long time and that woman said so many times, she's like, I don't like you the minute that, that pager goes off. She goes, you become a different person. I become cold, she said. I mean, my own guys, my own guys say that I'm a, I'm the biggest asshole when I'm working. They're like, you're just a big dick when you're working. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess it's just, you know, your game face. It's time to go to work. But I mean, I've spoken to emergency room doctors, A&E doctors, as you might call them in England. I've talked to so many police officers who work with awful, awful, awful criminals the way that you do. And they are traumatized. They talk about the fact they need therapy to process the things that they see as part of their job. Well, I've got therapy. I got my nature and I got my, my happy place. I mean, everybody deals with stuff in their own way. And, and please don't take this wrong. And I mean that. America and world, please don't take this wrong. Our society has created a, a very much a wet nurse society. Everybody has trauma. Everybody, one kind or another, something happens in their life that's traumatic. Whether their cat got killed when they were a baby, their puppy got killed when they were a little boy, they got beaten. Somebody, Everybody's got trauma, okay? But... This is my personal observation, and I can say this as an authority because I've been around so many children that have had horrific experiences. I'm a damn authority on this stuff. Think about a cut on your arm, Sam. You pick at that scab and it bleeds. You leave that damn thing alone. It heals, and you can barely ever tell there was an injury. Children and people as a rule and as a whole have horrific experiences in their lives, but they move past them because they have life. Like Jesse and Amanda. She goes, that's just something that happened in my life. She goes, there are people, I've heard them, I've heard people call her a rape survivor. And she goes, I am not a rape survivor. She goes, that's just something that happened in my life. It doesn't dictate who I am. She goes, I'm a mom. I think most people, Casey, are able to get up in the morning and go to work or go to the grocery store or do the laundry because they don't think about this stuff. Well, they shouldn't. It shouldn't dictate your life. It shouldn't. These are things that happen, but do they happen all the time? No. Do they happen every day? Yes. But you can't let that rule your life. You can't. How do you get up and go to the grocery store and 
watching movies and sit in nature and because you know you've shared with me the tip of the iceberg here and if i think about it <sighs> if you let stuff like this affect you you make yourself insane there's a time and a place for it i'm not going to sit here and tell you there's not times that that i'm sitting home and i don't just break down and cry i'm always alone but it happens the story of the three kids i mean if i'd have been there one day sooner sam one day sooner that seven-year-old girl never would have got raped that affects me i was like fuck i could have been there one day sooner those are the things that haunt me and incidentally that little girl at seven years old just called me two days ago just had her second child and she's getting married she called me to invite me to her wedding are you gonna go you bet your ass i'm gonna go what are you going to say when you're sitting at the table with the other guests when they say, so how do you know the bride? <laughs> I'm just going to tell them I'm a longtime family friend. What do you say at social functions like that? If I was to sit down next to you at a wedding, there you are with your suit on, I'm wearing a hat, we're eating a starter or entree, and I say, so what do you do? What do you tell me? Oh, just tell them that I, I run a little business or something. All right, so what do you do? Have you got a store? Building service? Well, I, what do you do? I, I actually do have a couple businesses, but I'm not going to tell you what they are here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just pick up on one thing you said to me a while ago when you talked about how you deal with what I would call trauma and you would call your job. And you said, you know, you come back and you get out into nature or you go to your happy place. What is Casey's happy place? My home. My mountain. It's my happy place. I have peace. Are you happy? Overall, yeah, I'm happy. Could I be happier? Yeah, I could be a lot happier. <laughs> what would make you happier? Not being lonely. The thing I I miss the most. I miss uh, I miss a woman's fingers in my hair. I haven't had that in decades. It's a long time to go without something that makes you feel good. Got to be the right person. What are you doing about that? Nothing right now. In the short time that I've known you, you've never struck me as someone who sits there and waits for life to come to them. I'm also a person that doesn't share my self completely, which means that I might be not always telling you completely the truth. But no, there is no one in my life right now. What haven't you told me the truth about? That. I've held back some stuff from you, but it's stuff that I had to hold back. To protect your identity? Or people that I love. Like one thing I haven't told you the truth about. I am very much an Indian. But the Indian that I told you that I am, I am not. Because that would make the area very small to look in, wouldn't it? So my blood is not Comanche. I will never give you information that will narrow down the ability to find me that much easier. So I guess I half lied there. <laughs> Next time on American Vigilante. We're going to start right here and we're just going to hit every house. Just boom, boom, boom. And we're going to go into every house looking for this guy. We rolled up to that place and it looked like cockroaches under a light. I kid you not. I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night. Scorched earth policy means we're torching the place. People come running out screaming, you know, oh my God, there's a fire. You know, Sam, I've been in love one time in my life and it wasn't the woman that I married. American Vigilante is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Sam Walker. 
It's produced by Phil Brown and Steve Jones. The executive producer for Crowd is Mike Carr. Associate producer for Stowaway Entertainment is Jeff Singer. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another Crowd podcast to listen to, try Death of a Rockstar. It's the stories of Kurt Cobain, Whitney Houston, Bob Marley, John Lennon, and more, all told like you've never heard them before. It's a series about being adored by millions, what it feels like, and what it does to you. Go and search for Death of a Rockstar and have a listen. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport... Then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. 
The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.